in Alabama. I'm Beth McGinnis. My guest is Dr. James Abington. Dr. Abington is Associate Professor of Church Music and Worship at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. He was the featured guest at a worship exchange conference the Center for Worship and the Arts hosted at Samford University in September of 2021. As you listen to our conversation, you'll realize that Dr. Abington is a giant in the field of church music. You might also pick up on how much it meant to me to speak with him and learn from him. Well, Dr. Abington, we are so glad to have you here today. And we've um, had sort of a casual and informal start to our conversation Mm -hmm. this morning. But I want to formally welcome you to Samford, but also to here in Alabama. That's H-E-A-R in Alabama. (laughs) And the podcast is all about music traditions Mm -hmm. in Alabama and some of the music traditions that are less known, not as well known as as maybe the the mainstream. Now, you are a well-known figure in church music, and so we're breaking from tradition a little bit, and you're not from Alabama, Mm -hmm. but we are in Alabama. Mm -hmm. So I thought maybe this would be appropriate to have a Mm -hmm. conversation about church music, but I'd really love to start with your life. Mm -hmm. If you could tell us a little bit about your earliest musical memories, what drew you to church music, how you found your way from growing up to the work that you do now. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am honored to uh, be here and to be welcomed at this wonderful institution. I have, when I hear Samford, I get a warm place in my heart for so many reasons and people that I've known associated with this institution and students that have I have uh, met through this school and through the, the Beeson uh, Divinity School. Uh, so thank you so much for being here. Boy, that question is uh, one that uh, I have to kind of revise because It's not what drew me. I think I was born on a pew in church. (laughs) That uh, I wasn't drug. I think I was delivered on a pew uh, right behind the piano there. Uh, So for as long as I can remember, I've been in church. My mother was choir director, wonderful singer. She played piano. I didn't have a choice. I was there. I sat on the pew behind and if I got and annoyed or whatever, or I got out of hand, she would throw something back at me and get me in order. But uh, My mother was a minister of music and a church pianist at different times while I was growing up. Later, she sang in the choir. She could control me and my siblings with looks from the choir loft. That was kind of my place, sitting on the pew behind the piano there in the front of the church. But uh, it wasn't long for uh, me to grow into the church. I wasn't just a musician in church, I became a church musician that really had church uh, at the heart of my calling, which was music. And uh, that was in a little small rural coal mining town in West Virginia, Gary, West Virginia, McDowell County. U.S. Steel was the major employer, and my father was a coal miner. In fact, my grandfather and uncle, who both were pastors and preachers, I also worked in the coal mines. That was uh, really the the major employment at that time. But as I have been blessed to travel the world, I look back on my humble beginnings and God put me in the right place. I was exposed to some of the best education, teachers who really were committed to excellence and who made bricks with very little straw. Just a side note, I don't know if you caught the idiom bricks with very little straw, but it comes from the book of Exodus in the Hebrew Bible. When the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, Pharaoh commanded them to make bricks without being provided any straw. At the time, straw was an essential ingredient for brick making. The enslaved Hebrews had to gather their own. I really started playing the piano by ear. My mother began to just kind of show me chords. They had There was a piano there at the house and I would just kind of play around on it. And she began to show me what we call one, four, five progressions. And You may have heard the old saw about how all it takes to make a country song is three chords and the truth. 
Gospel can be that way too. When Dr. Abington talks about one, four, and five, he's talking about the three main chords that form the basis of a whole lot of music. She would sing little melodies to me, so my ear developed much quicker than my uh, my literacy for reading music. But uh, I uh, then became very caught up in music. I will never forget at my baptism on August the sixth, nineteen sixty seven. Uh, at that little church there, Apostolic Temple, where my grandfather baptized me. My grandmother was there, one of her prayer warriors. And I remember them praying over my hands and asking God to to make a musician of me. And at seven years old, I loved my grandparents dearly, but it was something about that, that, well, if grandmother would pray this prayer, this must be serious. And from that moment, it's like my ears developed and I began playing. Unfortunately, my ear developed faster <laughs> than the playing. And so it was kind of difficult in music lessons because I wanted to play more than what the teacher was showing me on the scale. So I studied piano in high school. While I was in high school, I actually developed an ensemble of singers made up of primarily black students. So by the time I was in the eighth, ninth grade, I was already a leader. So I had to uh, kind of separate myself and not be the normal kid cutting up as I did in elementary school. Uh, But then I I was led on to college, attended West Virginia State College in Institute, West Virginia. It's now West Virginia State University. Uh, I was led there by a man who was one of two blacks to have earned doctorates in the state of West Virginia. And he wanted me to go there and they made scholarships available and I was accompanying the most unusual thing happened. The pastor of the First Baptist Church of Charleston, this is a church that had been historically pastored by Mordecai Johnson, uh, Moses Newsom. At that time, the pastor was Ronald English, who was the son of Deacon Jethro English from Atlanta, who was the chairman of the Deacon Board at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, where Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. Abington didn't feel the need to finish that sentence, but you probably know that Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta is where the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a pastor from 1960 to 1968. His father, Reverend Martin Luther King, was senior pastor from 1931 to 1975. Now that that begins to have some relevance as I tell my story. So I started there and he says, well, we need someone to direct our sanctuary choir. Now, you have to understand this is 1978. I am 18 years old. And here I am in the church, the largest black Baptist church in the state of West Virginia, with probably all of the faculty, most prominent faculty at West Virginia State, who are in the church, in the congregation, in the choir, and I'm the choir director. I have the chancel choir, not not the children's choir, not the youth choir, but the sanctuary choir. To quote Howard Thurman, they certainly placed a crown high above my head that I had to grow tall enough to wear pretty fast. I don't know how, but he took that risk. And so I uh, was the director of the sanctuary choir, played organ there occasionally. And I was introduced by Pastor Ronald English, who was a Morehouse grad, to the late Wendell Whalum, which changed my life, who had been the director of the Glee Club at Morehouse for many years, and Ron sang in the Glee Club. And he invited him to First Baptist to do a workshop. And I was mesmerized with this man, everything about him. And he says, well, I know your teacher. She and I are from Atlanta, but If you ever get discouraged or if you ever decide you want to leave West Virginia, here's my number. Well, needless to say, after a rather rough semester, I said, I think it's about time for me to get out of here because I've become a big fish in a small pond. I need to go somewhere. They said, oh, well, Morehouse will correct that real fast. (laughs) You know, so we've we've had a lot of big fish that come here and they discover this is an ocean, not a pond. And sure enough, I said, Dr. Whalum, I'm thinking about transferring. He said, when do you want to come? So I actually transferred to Morehouse. I started there in January of 1980. 
Well, I told Dr. Whalem I wanted to study organ. He was a fine organist, his choir director. He says, well, I've got the church just for you. And I said, fine. And he says, well, you, I want you to be the accompanist of the Glee Club. I said, well, that'll be great. And he said, but you have to learn the music. You have to, you know, you're going to be on scholarship. So the church that I was assigned to become organist was the West Hunter Street Baptist Church, pastored by the late Ralph Abernathy. That's Ralph Abernathy, the civil rights leader and good friend of Martin Luther King Jr. As Dr. Abington continued to tell his story, it sounded like a who's who of the civil rights movement. So imagine, you know, I'm what about 19 years old and I'm going to Atlanta to start Morehouse College and I am the church organist where Ralph Abernathy is the pastor. Well, at that time, of course, Daddy King was still alive and Ebenezer. And so there was so much of that that was still living history in Atlanta. Dr. Whalen played at Ebenezer a couple of Sundays, but he says, you know, they really need someone at Ebenezer on second Sundays. I, I would like to recommend you for the position. And I said, to play at Ebenezer? And he said, yeah. He said, so uh, I went down. And at that time, Dr. Joseph Roberts was the pastor who had just followed Daddy King. I got Joe Roberts' approval, but Daddy King had to look over me as well because, of course, his wife had been the organist of the church, Mama King, years ago. Uh, So the choir that I was actually taking over, she had directed. Again, I'm this 19, 20-year-old student at Morehouse College at the Ebenezer Baptist Church. So, you know, on Sunday morning, I'm looking at Daddy King and watching Coretta come in late, you know, every Sunday. And uh, Bernice, Bunny King, she is now, was sing- we called her Bunny, was singing in the choir. So, I mean, I kind of grew up in that tradition of the Abernathy's and Ebenezer Church. And Ronald English, who was the pastor of First Baptist in Charleston's father, was the chairman of the deacon board of Ebenezer, sang bass in the choir, and his mother sang soprano in the church choir. There was a man known as the Harvard Hooper. If you heard the episode where I interviewed the Reverend Dr. Matthew Wilson, pastor of Providence Baptist Church in Marion, Alabama, you know about hooping. It's a very energetic and musical preaching style. When Pastor Wilson preaches in a hooping cadence, he is following the leadership of the Holy Spirit and seeking to help his congregation connect with the Spirit. When Dr. Abington refers to the Harvard Hooper, he's talking about Harvard Divinity School professor Charles Adams, who is known for this style of preaching. We would come to Atlanta every Memorial Day weekend to do a revival at Ebenezer. And pastors and ministers from all over the state would come to hear Charles Adams from Hartford Memorial Baptist in Detroit come to preach. And I would play. In fact, I ended up at Ebenezer playing on second and fifth Sundays because I was at uh, West Hunter the other Sundays. And in the summer, uh, I think my my hazing was having to play all the early services at Ebenezer so the visitors could get in. So I spent as much time at Ebenezer as I did at West Hunter Street. So I was you know, there for the revival. And as I was getting ready to graduate, Charles Adams was talking to me and Reverend Roberts. And he says, well, I hear you're getting ready to do your graduate work at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He says, oh, that's about that's only about 30 minutes from Detroit. Well, it's really about an hour. He said, "Uh, I'd love to have you come to Hartford Church in Detroit. Well, that began the next major part of my life. So sure enough, in uh, August of 1983, I entered the University of Michigan for my master's and doctorate studying with Marilyn Mason and was the church organist and the minister of music at the Hartford Memorial Baptist Church. At that time, it was about 6,000 members. So going from this little church in Gary, West Virginia from 30 to maybe on an Easter Sunday, seeing about 50 or 60 people to seeing that many people in the choir when it was a snowstorm was quite an experience, but it was a place where I really grew and I think my, my life musically from that in terms of my graduate work and being able to design the pipe organ for the church. Actually, I was in a construction and design course, organ construction and design course. And the project was to choose a room, choose a builder, you know, all, all of these things to demonstrate that you understood the workings of the organ. And the irony was that the project that ultimately I turned in for that class, became the organ that is now in the church named for me. 
with the professor that taught me as the consultant for the for the church. And it's a, a four manual, 72 rank Petty Madden pipe organ and one of the finest in the country and still very playable today. So from those years at Hartford, I was there about 13 years, but I had to really get serious. Unfortunately, I, I tell all of my students and mentees, don't do what I did. I went to Michigan and majored in Hartford and minored in Michigan. I said, stay focused, you know, on why you're there. But God, God had permitted me to study with a wonderful person like Marilyn Mason, who was able to be a professor, but to have that kind of maternal presence that said, you know, you're going to finish this degree. And I did finish there. I left Hartford in about 1996 and did a lot of work out of New York for a couple of years. And I took my first full-time academic appointment in 1998 at Shaw University, which is a little small HBCU in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I went there as director of the choir and the chairman of the Department of Visual and Performing Arts. And I was there five years and then from there on to Morgan State University for two years to direct the graduate study program. And during that time, the legendary Nathan Carter, who is a native of Alabama, from Selma, Alabama, who for some 38 years directed the Morgan State University Choir, which reached international acclaim, hoped that I was going to stay on there. But after his death, it just wasn't the same place and would have probably never imagined that I would end up back in Atlanta, if anywhere, probably Morehouse. But I was invited to the faculty at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University, where I'm beginning my 16th year. And it was in Dr. Abington's capacity as church music professor at Emory that he came to visit us at Samford. But I wanted to know more about his beginnings. There are so many questions that come up in my mind as you tell the story, but I think I'd like to go back to your baptism Mm -hmm. when they prayed over your hands Mm -hmm. and they blessed your hands. It makes me think about how we use our bodies Mm. as musicians and as organists. I know that Dr. Whalem was formerly the organist at Friendship Baptist, where you are. Where I am, absolutely. I also have the honor of having succeeded my teacher and mentor in the position of church organist. Oh, wow. Her name was Dr. Betty Sue Shepard. She was the organist at my church, Vestavia Hills Baptist, for 38 years. For 50 years, she taught piano at Samford University, where I was a piano major. Dr. Shepard got sick not too long after my husband and I returned to Birmingham after graduate school. She asked me to start filling in for her. I had taken organ lessons in college, but they didn't really stick, so I had very little confidence. Dr. Shepard gave me some tips and loaned me her own organ shoes, which were the right size. I learned on the job. Now, I've been the organist at Vestavia Hills Baptist Church for 15 years. I still wear Dr. Shepard's shoes. When she died, our pastor was preaching her eulogy and used Romans 12, 1 mm. as the verse. Mm. And I don't even oh, have to yeah. quote it. But, um, <laughs> oh, yeah. He took that offer your bodies mm-hmm. as a living, living sacrifice, sacrifice yeah. right? And he built a whole eulogy out of that, talking about the four limbs, the arms and the legs and the hands and the feet playing the organ, and then it's your whole body playing the organ. And I connect that with your baptism story of having your hands mm-hmm. blessed. And you also said that you learned by ear mm-hmm. first, which is an embodied way yes, of learning absolutely. music. I wonder if you might reflect on that. Yeah, well, church, as I said, was very important. Church was in me. My grandfather did not pastor the church, and so it was a big deal for him to be there on that Sunday evening to come from Huntington, West Virginia, to back to Gary. And my grandmother uh, was overseeing a little congregation in Rotaville, West Virginia, but they had managed to be there for their grandchild in 1967. And just to be baptized by my grandfather and to have my grandmother there and her good friend, Sister Edwards. And after I came up from the baptism and they're taking my hands, and this is my grandmother, my grandfather standing there. And if ever I could say that there was a really indwelling of the Holy Spirit that went through my life at seven years old, it was that moment. Mm. 
it was not emotion. It was a spirit of something coming into my body, uh, having been immersed in water and brought up to new life. There was new life that took place. That blessing from my grandmother, who did not, who did not play an instrument. She was not a singer, but to pray that prayer and to see that God would take me and make something more of me at that moment. And it was as if I just kind of saw my hands glowing. I said, something is happening, and I did not know. And then it was from that point that I think my ears did become more tuned. And as I have to admit, so many musicians are gifted, you know, with this oral gift of hearing and playing. I can, oh, I can miss name countless numbers of musicians that have written music uh, who, well, they've had their music transcribed because they are able to compose it. They can write it. They can play it. They, well, they compose it in mentally, but someone else has to actually notate it for them. But the ear develops faster than their literacy. And that's what happened to me. But it was not that my parents and my teachers were not trying to do that for me. But if I heard it, I could play it. If it was a commercial, uh, something I heard on TV, I was at the piano playing. Then my father, one Christmas, I said, I wanted an organ. And they actually went out. And that's, I had to believe in Santa Claus up to that point. Because I said, well, now if Santa Claus brings an organ up in this house, maybe I may have to rethink this. And sure enough, uh, we, they told the story later on that my father had purchased this organ they took it down the street to someone else's home. And that night when I went to bed, some of my cousins and all came up to bring this organ up to put in the house that night. So when I woke up, there was this Hammond L100 model organ sitting there. It was at that point. And so my father and mother, so mama said, well, you know, you better you better keep practicing and remember your grandmother's prayer. And it was from that point that I just knew that this was what I was supposed to do. And from that prayer, my mother had a video and I don't I know we will probably never find it, but it was a real to real where there was actually an organ in the home when I was growing up. And there's a picture of me on the organ as a kid playing and just my hand. So even at the church today, at the Friendship Church and even at the Hartford Church when I was in Detroit, if a parent brought their child up to the organ after service, because, you know, they see this big, massive instrument, and kids are very fascinated. And, oh, my God, if they hear the chimes, you know, they're just they're just <laughs> fascinated. So I would always, after my postlude, sometimes have some some parents that brought their kids up every Sunday and I would let them sit on the organ and just let them ring a chime and just to watch the glow. And occasionally I would put my hand on them and just pray that mm-hmm. same prayer for them that my grandmother played. And. Most recently, one of my colleagues, Dr. Walter Fluker, brought his grandson to church, he and his wife. I said, put him up there on the organ. And so I, you know, I let him you know, play and I pulled some stops so he could play it. Then I said, let me put the chime. And of course, that same little feeling came over. And I prayed that prayer because I truly believe that the gift of God happened on that occasion. I do that same thing with children oh, after yeah. a worship service. And it's such a holy It is. Moment. It is a great moment. Another thing I do with children is ask them to count the chimes with me. At Vestavia Hills Baptist Church, I begin every worship service by chiming the hour. It's our signal that now is the time for all of us to turn our attention to worship. Our service begins at 10 o'clock, so I chime 10 times. When we have worship skills classes for first graders, I ask the children to count with me and help make sure I chime 10 times, not 9 or 11. You started and ended with chimes in one of your your hymn medley improvisation in the funeral service for Mm. Mr. Henry Aaron. Yes, that's Mr. Henry Aaron, Hank Aaron, the great baseball player. Dr. Abington played the organ for Mr. Aaron's funeral service at Friendship Baptist Church. You can find portions of the service on YouTube. The chimes must be special. Well, you know, it's it's so funny. We have a joke. When I was in this organ construction and design class, one of the questions, if, if you only had, you could only put four stops on an organ, for church, you, you, you were given money, you only could put what four stops would there be? And I said, well, if it's organ for the church, number one, the chimes. And so, of course, that was wrong answer. You know, we were talking eight foot principle. You know, these were supposed to be the answers. But something about the ethereal sound of the chimes in church that and I think that was for me 
most evident, and Wendell Whalum was my master service player. He had a way of almost sounding, the organ became an angelic ensemble. He just knew what to do, how to do it, what stops, you know, how to register the organ for certain occasions and to be sensitive before I learned about playing hymns and how you should treat each stanza differently and all. But he would very strategically almost make you want to hear the chimes at some point. You'd heard all these different parts of the organ and the grandeur and the, the soft stops, but it was something about just hearing the chimes that you could see a, a whole mood change over the congregation. I did not do it on a regular basis because I didn't want it to be a, an emotional desired response to see, oh, I want to make them cry, so let me bring on the chimes, you know, but it would really be a moment of, of reflection and it somehow just kind of bathe the atmosphere. You're probably referring to the moment that I think when I played that old Lucy Campbell piece, but it was a moment, if you can imagine, when Bill Clinton had just, President Bill Clinton had just finished his remarks and Pastor Emeritus Bill Guy was getting ready to do the eulogy, who was really the only pastor that Mr. Aaron knew in Atlanta. They said, well, we don't need a solo. That's too long. It just needs, we want to keep things, you know, the service is going to be lengthy. And so Bill had asked me just to play some kind of transitional music, Mozart moving music, you know, during Mm -hmm. the, the liturgy to get them over. And I had forgotten about it, you know, because I, I had so much other things to, to deal with through the service. And I'm like, oh, my God, what do I play? And the whole world is literally watching this, although there were 50 people in the sanctuary. You know, this is Hank Aaron. and People are watching. And so I was thinking, should I play a spiritual? What should I play, you know, to prepare Reverend Guy to speak? Because the, the, the mood and the spirit needed to change. And I know it was the Holy Spirit that spoke to me. He'll understand and say, well done. And I said, oh, that's old. I mean, this, I don't think our congregation is, it's not a really congregational number necessarily, but it just seemed at that point with all that had gone on, just playing that was the right thing to do that time. I had no idea that it would get that kind of response and text and people saying, oh my God, what made you think to play that piece? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people did not know that it was written by a black woman from Memphis, Tennessee. (laughs) Do you typically play organ support during a sermon or a prayer? No, I don't. Well, of course, you know, the standard rules are prayer stands alone. We don't have to, we don't do that. Traditions in many black churches, the ministers want that. You know, Mm -hmm. they want this music. They want something underneath to, they say sometimes drowned out the other sounds. I am very careful. I have a deacon who is very particular about, uh, you know, I don't want the organ playing when I pray. And I said, well, that's no problem. But that means we're really listening to your prayer. And hopefully it is well prepared. Unfortunately, that's not always been the case. And probably would have done good to have the marching band behind the prayer. <laughs> but uh, uh, the Michigan uh, <laughs> Wolverines band. There are many times that people will do it. Or I've, I've been in churches where a minister will get up to pray and we'll start quoting a hymn, which is your hint to start playing. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our needs are sweet hour of prayer. And so you, you know, what do you play? A Bach chorale, you know, you play what they want to play. Or as I said, I've had many ministers. I try to be sensitive as an organist to what is appropriate as opposed to, and then understanding my role is not to compete with, but to kind of as Wait, let see, be kind of this ethereal musical screen between the spoken and the unspoken. I'm trying to become freer to do that sort mm-hmm. of thing. I grew up, I think maybe learning in the opposite way. Oh, sure. I grew up learning mostly by reading mm-hmm. and I've had to work on my ear mm-hmm. and I do, I do mm-hmm. work on it. But I still don't necessarily have the freedom always to, like if the pastor starts quoting Mm -hmm. a hymn, Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily feel free in our tradition Mm -hmm. to start playing that. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to get more free. And I think my congregation is trying to become more free as Mm -hmm. well. We sang this past Sunday, our choir saying he is marvelous an anthem by Rosephany Powell. Yeah, yeah. And and we worked on it for months and yeah. months. And Dr. Powell in the performance notes, she writes that you can improvise if you have a good sense of the gospel style. Mm-hmm. And I did my best. <laughs> but <laughs> we clapped. Our choir clapped and some of them swayed. 
You can see and hear this on YouTube under the caption Sunday Worship on September 26, 2021 at Vestavia Hills Baptist Church. Go easy on us. Afterwards, the pastor got up and said, I hope none of y'all hurt yourself. Well, you know, I think there is something very liberating about that. You, you know, you're talking about the body and using the body and the embodiment of music. I have been in so many lectures trying to provide people with that freedom and that liberty to to imp- improvise and to be spontaneous in moments like that. But from the Western culture, we're taught it must be this way or else. The Asians have mastered the gospel tradition in ways that if you were to close your eyes, you would have no way of, uh, way of knowing that it was not. A, a black gospel choir. That does not mean all blacks sing gospel. That must be said. Mm-hmm. You know, let the records show that I said that. <laughs> to mean black does not mean, be black does not mean that you sing gospel or that you rock or you clap on beats two and four. But I do think there's something to be said for that freedom to do that. And I think it's, it depends on the worship services and the, the styles. I immediately think of my teacher, the late Marilyn Mason. She says that really you cannot be a great player of French Baroque music or really some of the early Baroque music and even certain Bach ornamentation without a good sense of ornamentation. Because with Bach and with Handel, they did not write out every ornament. And while theorists have attempted to do what they think Bach did, we don't know. And uh, on the trills, you know, they, they don't say that it should be da-da-da, it could be da-da-da-da-da. It just means that there is supposed to be an alternation between the notes. But if you've played any Couperin or De Grigny or Dumage, you don't play that music playing what's on the page. You have to know the French Inigal and the kinds of things that are there. Dr. Abington is talking about musical performance practice. We generally distinguish between musical improvisation and musical notation, but the truth is there's always more to the music than what's on the page. If I'm playing French Baroque music, or jazz, or gospel, or even a Beethoven piano sonata, it behooves me to know the traditions and customs of that style. The French note inégal, for example, is a term that means unequal notes. It's like swinging the rhythm in jazz. The rhythms look equal on the page, but you play them in a long, short pattern. Trills and other ornaments are similar. Bach, Handel, and other composers typically didn't write out how to play the ornament. Often, they didn't even indicate that there should be an ornament in a certain place. They just assumed performers would know. I remember... Over the fall semester, Dr. Mason assigned me the Cooperine uh, Masters of of the Convent, told me to take this home. And she said, we'll start on this in January. I took the book. I'm like, doesn't she think I can't sight read? You know, I mean, these are, you know, these are pieces. So she put the the first piece up there and I played it. So she, she'd sit there and then she, she made no comments. She's fine. says, well, you know, I know you can play the notes. She says, now we're going to spend the rest of the semester learning the music. And so I looked at her. I said, she says, oh, well, you know, you do know that the notes are not the music. That does not represent the French Baroque style. She said, so she gave me these treatises. And then she said, she said, let me play, you know, the first movement. And she played it. I'm like, God, Dr. Mason, I did. She says, this is typical of what the French would have done. This is what scholarship shows us. She says, and that's why there are so many, I can hear her with her high-pitched voice. She says, there's so many fine organists that who, who just read notes, but they never play music. She says, and, and it's so sad. You know, I'd just rather they don't program it if they don't know what to do with it. And uh, she says, there's so much bad Bach and everybody wants to say they play it. I was liberated in that moment to understand that the same is true even in the African-American tradition. You may not know all of the little idiomatic expressions and do it. And the way you do it will not be the way someone else does it. But you certainly should have the freedom to do it. And if it feels good to your heart and it's done in bon appetit, in good style, in good taste, you should be able to do it. The congregations that that rock or that sway or that clap, you know, if that's if that brings them joy and they are rendering it unto God. Who are we to then turn around and become the judges? Because we have already failed God at the point that we're judging. 
That is it's so apropos. I, I teach musicology here, mm-hmm. and we've just been working with Baroque music, Baroque ornamentation. Mm-hmm. We're just thinking about note integral mm-hmm. and overdotting and yeah. the figured bass as mm-hmm. a, a template, you know, a framework, but mm-hmm. not the music, as mm-hmm. you say. I told you about note integral. Overdotting is another Baroque rhythmic practice. You might hear it in a performance of Handel's Messiah. Handel wrote long, short rhythms, but often the custom is to make the short notes twice as short as written. Figured bass is like a shorthand notation. Just the bass line is written out with numbers that indicate the harmonic structure. The performer is supposed to decode this bare-bones notation in the appropriate style. I think sometimes Baroque music has more in common with jazz Mm -hmm. than with maybe a Beethoven sonata. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's often been said, wouldn't it be great to hear Bach improvise today? If Bach could come back today and, uh, and be given a melody, mm-hmm. what, what would that sound like? What would Bach do today? What we know and the additions that we have been held hostage to of Handel's Messiah, wouldn't it have been something to have gotten a CD of Handel playing Handel's Messiah? What would that have sounded like? Because those, as you said, the figured bass and the kinds of things that are there. Or you stop and think about those improvised cadenzas of Mozart. What would that have sounded like? We'll never know. You know, Beethoven just it basically said improvise and the rest is history. Many, many great players have crashed and burned trying. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned Marilyn Mason, and I was curious why she doesn't approve or didn't approve of transcriptions. You mentioned that. Yeah, I think she lightened up in her latter days, but boy, you just didn't mention transcription. And trust me, speaking of Mr. Mr. Hank's funeral, I played the uh, adagio for strings by Samuel Barber, and I'm like, Mason... Marilyn wouldn't like this, you know. But her thing was that there's probably no instrument that has had so much literature written for it like the organ. Why would you need to go take something that was not written for the organ and try to transcribe it for the organ? And she felt that many of the transcriptions were not even really good reductions. Something's left out. You know, the organ has a lot of possibilities. That's why you have to be careful in playing Rager. You know, Rager is not uh, for every instrument because all of the intricacies that are required, you know, and you, you look at the whole uh, symphonic style, you know, that's why Franck doesn't go well on every instrument. If you are faithful to the, to the registrations of Franck or, or to what many of the, uh, the French masters of the 19th century of the symphonic traditions were writing, so that, you know, transcriptions, you can come up with thick ways of doing it. I think she began to lighten in her latter years. I remember there was an organ conference and there was a whole program of transcriptions. And I said to her, I said, Dr. Mason, are we going to go out for, for refreshments afterwards? She says, no, we're going to do it before. <laughs> she said, we need to start early. And uh, so sure enough, I sat there and kind of watched her through the whole thing. And, you know, she... I think she knew that the eyes of all was on her. You know, here we were in Phil's Hill Auditorium. And, and she was right. There are some that are more successful than others. She just had just loads of no tolerance for transcription. She says, for every piece that you show me that has been transcribed, I can show you three or four quality pieces that have been written by organists who knew how to compose for the organ, who have done a much finer job. And those pieces have never been heard. And she was right. And even if you're, unless you're playing an organ piece on the organ Mm -hmm. for which it was Mm -hmm. composed, you often have to do some kind Mm -hmm. of adjustment. And I'm thinking, I've played some Duraflay on the organ, and Mm -hmm. Duraflay was so very specific about what registrations, Mm -hmm. indicating Mm -hmm. what registrations. But then you have to figure out, how can I make that, can I approximate that sound on the organ that I'm playing? You must do it. That's, that's, there's no option. I had the privilege of editing. I have a now four volumes of a collection called King of Kings. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. seen that. Mm-hmm. King of Kings, organ music by black composers, past and present. There's a, so much music by black composers that has not been published. Uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. 
Mickey Thomas Terry has published some, I think, through Morningstar called the African-American Organ Anthology. In the four volumes that I have published, in this fourth one, I dedicated to Maryland. And I had to immediately assess every piece because many of them did not have registrations. Some had to, the registrations were so specific that they would never, you know, nobody would have ever tried to play them. So the instruction that I had to give that was make sure that you adapt this to your instrument. Organists always want to see the specification list before you begin to play literature because what if you're going to, you're going to play the, uh, the, uh, the trumpet uh, voluntary or somewhere, but there's no st- trumpet on the organ or there's no, there are no instruments to do that. So does it mean you can't play it? Well, no, but what are you going to do to make it, uh, make it work? So I think that is important. But people there, again, organists, have, as you uh, know that you have to, to use the, uh, uh, the instruments. Um, I've fortunately uh, have at my disposal, it's a Casavant that uh, Wendell Whalum designed. Of course, uh, Mr. Hank and uh, Mrs. Billy Aaron have been major contributors to the expansion of that organ and maintaining the Casavant. They were very, that organ was installed in 1969. So that was very significant. Martin Luther King dies in 1968, for whom my teacher, Joyce Johnson, who is still alive and well and still playing, played for the service for Martin Luther King there at Sisters Chapel. The organ at Sisters Chapel at Spelman College had just been installed, the Holt Camp, in 1968. Then imagine at the Friendship Baptist Church in 1969, there's a Casavant installed. So that was very significant for Atlanta, you know, to have had those kind of instruments. Dr. Whalum obviously was very much influenced by the French Baroque. And when you look at the specifications, they're there. So uh, great instrument for playing front. Of course, that, a lot of that went into the decisions of the organ at, at Hartford in Detroit, a Cavalier Cole style. In fact, we even the placement of the manuals, the Grand Orgas on the bottom, and then the Racy, then the Bombard, the Solos. So that when you play the Vidor Toccata or any Vierne, it just makes sense because the the manuals be in the in the places that are most logical, as opposed to lifting up and going down to mm-hmm. the place. So uh, there's the body again. There the body. That's right. Because yeah, it looks profound, but in the French, it would not have been a problem. It's just been moving up and down. The <laughs> there's a controversy, or a little bit of a controversy, about the Vidor Toccata about tempo. Oh yeah. Where do you fall down on that? Well, I was privileged to study uh, 19th century organ literature with the late Robert Glasgow. And I am convinced that he was taught by Franck and Vidor because there was no one who, in my estimation, who has lived, who could interpret that music like it. And he gave to all of his students his own annotated copy. So in my home library, I have the Franck, Vidor, and Vienne symphonies edited by, by Robert Glasgow and his fingerings and pedaling and all. So I, those are like in the vault of my home. Glasgow always says, have, have you been to the places where, where these composers played? He said, that's why we, we invest in students going to Europe. You need to see that. You know, Maryland believed that. You need to play the instruments. You need to understand this is just not some strange articulation that I came up with. You would not be able to play on the flat pedal boards of Bach like you play on the conclave pedal boards today. And if you look at the cathedrals, you can't play at the lickety-split tempos that you might be able to play in a church. There's no way that Vidor would have played. He's, well, he would say, well, it's just equivalent, like taking your hand and just putting your whole hand on the organ and just let, <laughs> let the sound come up and see what you get. He says, it's going to be about the same. You're sitting up there playing. And uh, he says, you know, but you've got to hear. He says, do you think that the composers did not want you to hear the intricacies of the harmony mm. and the changes? Mm. And if it goes by so fit, he says, it does not say scherzo. It says quasi. Mm-hmm. It says, and you have to understand these tempos. He said, the French didn't walk around with, with a metronome that, that said, this has got to be it or whatever. Mm. He says, let's face it, you've got to play for the acoustic. He says, but more importantly, you have to know the whole symphony. How would you end after those other four movements with that toccata? Mm-hmm. It doesn't just come out of the sky. You have you can't play one movement of the Beethoven Pastoral without knowing the other movements. The whole Sixth Symphony, I think, is just a, a masterpiece, but every movement depends on the other movements. 
And that I think is true with Vidor's symphony. And he taught that you, the movements have to have some relationship. What is the movement before the Takata? It's an adagio. And it doesn't just rock into some lickety split, see how fast you can play. Mm -hmm. And if you were playing it in Suplice or Sakur or, or if, well, he wasn't playing in, in, in uh, Notre Dame, could it be played at that tempo and be, no. People wonder, well, what's what's wrong with the organist today? Yeah, so, you know, bon appetit, but I think uh, that there's a lot to be said for him. But he was very, very strict about tempo, what works, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the room. Mm -hmm. I think the body has come back to our conversation, too, because you're talking about the whole body of a work of music, of a five-movement work of music mm -hmm. or a four-movement, and it works together as a body in much the same way as the church does, mm -hmm. 1 Corinthians 12, or that we're all part of a body. Mm -hmm. And I guess my last question this morning might have, might have to do with funeral playing. We've sort of talked around mm -hmm. funeral playing, and you've done many funerals. Mm -hmm. I've done a number of funerals, and I, I always feel like I'm more a part of the body, the body of Christ, the body of the church, when I play a funeral. I learn to know the life of that person in a different way, but I just feel more interconnected mm -hmm. with that body. Is that like Well, that it's so interesting that you would, would comment on that because I had the privilege of being, well, I was featured in two of the four series on funerals with the Yale Institute of Sacred Music this summer that was led by Thomas Long. And if you have not read his book, Accompany Them with Singing, mm -hmm. The Christian Funeral, oh, that's a masterpiece. Tom was my colleague at Emory for many years and retired, I always say, too early for me. Martin Jean, who was my classmate at Michigan, incidentally, studied with Bob Glasgow and Marilyn invited us to be a part of this uh, webinar, four-part four webinar. And the title of it was Dying and Death in the Time of COVID. We were very careful to deal with the aspect of dying first, as opposed to just jumping to death. Because in the process, there is a process of dying mm -hmm. for some people, particularly with COVID and people who have had extended illnesses as opposed to someone who, whose life ends tragically. In the, the, the webinar that dealt specifically with funeralizing and memorializing the dead, your pastoral instincts have to be so important. Who is the deceased? Recently, I played a service for a member of our church who had been there 30 plus years. And uh, they said, oh, you know, he always sits with so-and-so and so-and-so. And I says, well, you know, I don't cruise the congregation to see who's sitting with who and who brought who. And I said, I don't have that kind of luxury at the organ. But they said, well, I thought you could see everybody. But I didn't. I did not recognize him. But they said, the family says, you know, whatever you, that'll be appropriate. And that bothered me because, oh, sure, I can select what might be appropriate funeral music. But who was he? What will this reflect? What was this? Oh, well, he was from Montgomery, Alabama. I said, well, what does that you know, say, you know, about him. But, you know, he, well, he taught school, you know, he did. So they went on to just, so I tried to call, well, I did call his best friend and she says, oh, I just know he loved, he loved your music and he loved everything. He was, you know, he's a very quiet man. And it was very, very difficult to just, you know, go into that service because I just felt like I was giving him generic, the family generic music who, obviously did not know him as well, but it was his, his own family. And it felt different from having known a person, mm -hmm. having had conversations with the family of the deceased. And, oh, I've had services where literally everything is planned out. I mean, from beginning to end, I played for the two services of musicians who literally had written out the keys, the modulations, the changes, one had even set the piston on the organ. I'll never forget that. And for the last verse, uh, used general six. And uh, so, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen the extent of that. Uh, when the late Brazil Denard died, who was a choral conductor, he literally had every, and I want this desk cam, and I would like this played for this, you know. So it was, there was just, you know, uh, Dr. Robert uh, Harris, who's a retired professor, 
choral music at Northwestern was conducting. Everything was there, so we just had to follow the script. There was a funeral this past week at our church, and this lady used to say to one of the ladies all the time, now you, I want you to sing on my day. I want you to sing on my day. His eyes on the sparrow. And she said, you know, I've been in retirement. I don't sing anymore. And I literally had to tell her, you need to do this. You know, this is not an adjudicated event by the National Association of Singing. There are things that I know about people and knowing your congregation. I think that's so important to know the flock, to know the people and to try to represent as much of that because you're really, you're doing it for, for the family, the people who remain. But I do think it is a ministry. I. I must go on record for saying that I will play 10 to 15 funerals before I play one wedding. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, you know, call me for the funerals, but uh, I, I, that's, that same day is the day I'm out of town. Just whatever day it was you were going to ask me. Wendell Whalum really told me that. He says that as a church organist, you have an obligation to be there for them. He said it does not matter what their status was in the church or how active or how young or how old. He says, the only thing you need to know is that they are dead mm. and that it is then your responsibility mm. to be the best pastoral musician in providing music that is comforting, mm. that is healing, that reinforces the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ at a time when people are their most broken publicly. Mm. Mm. And your responsibility as an organist is that to a pastoral musician, you, you literally speak through everything you play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what does what you play say to the people that are there? Mm -hmm. And if you use that as the template and God is your as your leader, you'll be successful. That's a powerful note to end on. I think I could talk to you for a few more hours, but, <laughs> but I think I have to wrap up. So thank you, Dr. Abington, for speaking with me today. And we are so, so glad to have you here at Sanford. I look forward to the rest of the day Thank and the you. rest of the experience together. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Dr. James Abington. You heard Dr. Abington accompany Lift Every Voice and Sing, sometimes known as the Black National Anthem. That was from a worship service in 2018 at 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. You also heard my own recording of the Barbara Adagio from a recent worship service at Vestavia Hills Baptist Church. Let's give God a hand praise for Dr. Abington! I'm Beth McGinnis, and this is Here in Alabama.